Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and thanks so much, as always, for joining us as we really just do that. We just get into the mind here. We learn something new. Today, we are talking with Arun... Oh, man. Now I'm worried. Okay. Arun Sundararajan. I'm pretty sure I got that right. Arun is an awesome guy and the author of a brand new book, literally drops, I think, today. It's called The Sharing Economy, The End of Employment, and the Rise of Crowd-Based Capitalism. He's an NYU professor and sharing economy expert. He draws on some extensive research and numerous real-world examples, including Airbnb, Lyft, Uber, Etsy, TaskRabbit, and not only the ones you've probably heard of, but also you know other countries that have these, these companies that are doing this, such as BlaBlaCar, Ola in India. A lot of things that, you know, we're taking the economy in a different direction and we've all used it, but have we really seen how far it can go? Arun doesn't think so. So look, I know you've by now, you've probably used something that is part of the quote unquote sharing economy, right? You've used the Airbnbs and the Ubers. So I don't need to tell you what it is. I'm just going to let you get into this interview and learn from a guy who knows a lot about it. As I mentioned, he's a professor at NYU and he's a professor of information operations and management sciences. 
He also conducts research about network science and the socioeconomic transformation of India. We're going to keep this intro short, let you get into the goods. Two main things. First of all, you know we got a lot of cool stuff going on with webinars and books that we're giving away and uh, you know sending out cool stuff. The main way you find out about that is the newsletter. If you're interested, that's cool. Smartpeoplepodcast.com, bottom right-hand corner. Sign up. You'll be alerted about upcoming things, uh, giveaways, and webinars. Additionally, I haven't said this one in a while, but Amazon. Use our Amazon link. Smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Takes you straight to Amazon, and you know we get a little kickback and no cost to you. All right, that's my pitch for right now. Let's get into this interview with Arun as we discuss his brand new book, The Sharing Economy. Enjoy. Arun, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you, especially because, you know, you talk about the sharing economy. Your, your newest book is The Sharing Economy, The End of Employment and the Rise of Crowd-Based Capitalism. And as an avid user of the sharing economy, I was just really excited to have somebody on that can explain the inner working. So thanks again for being on. Chris, I'm delighted to be here. And um, I'm particularly happy to be talking to someone who is an avid user of the sharing economy. I think that <laughs> That set of people used to be small a few years ago, but um, you know, as I explain in the book, um, I think that over the next decade or so, everybody will be an avid user of the sharing economy. Absolutely, and that's what's really most fascinating. I mean, the idea of the end of employment, essentially, and I know that's probably a stretch, but maybe not. Based on crowd-based capitalism, I, man, I just I'm excited to learn about it because I see the ups and downs of it, but. Before we do that, I want to learn, okay, so you're a, you're a professor at NYU, obviously an author, you do research, you're doing those things. Uh, did you always see yourself as, you know what, I'm going to be a researcher and a professor? Well, uh, if you had asked me when I was an undergraduate, um, what are the likely professions for you? Um, researcher and professor would have probably ranked pretty low. Um, I sort of stumbled into being a professor rather than it being my, I wasn't one of those guys who, when he was six years old, was saying, you know, I want to be a teacher. Um, I just happened to do a PhD after I finished my undergraduate degree because um, it seemed like I wanted to spend more time in school. And um, I've always been fascinated by digital technologies. I had a computer when I was a kid. I grew up programming. And you know, the, the the fact that digital technologies um, have such a profound impact on our lives was really what drew me into academia because I, you know, I realized as I was doing my PhD that there are, um, you know, this wasn't just about me and my computer or writing code or, um, you know, the technologies themselves. Um, that, you know, the internet was exploding and we were starting to see changes in, <clears throat> you know, how we consumed content, how we consumed music, how we bought stuff. And so, you know, the fact that I'm a professor, I think, is in part because of the subject that I research, that it, it, it has to do with this, um, you know, this amazing new technology that, you know, sort of has emerged in my lifetime that I think is changing our world more profoundly than any other technology before it. And, 
you know, I, I, I feel that that's a promise that has really been fulfilled sort of in a, in, in a, in a way that's far more sort of far more significantly than I'd have expected. You know, it's gone from changing the way we consume music or changing the way that we get our information to changing the way that we buy stuff to, you know, changing how we interact with each other through platforms like Facebook and WhatsApp. And now in the last few years with this wave of changes that uh, sort of many of us label the sharing economy, we're starting to see changes in sort of the physical world aspects of our life how we find a place to stay, how we get our food, how we get a ride to somewhere, how we go from one city to another, um, how we get our health care over time. It'll be how we sort of get our energy. Um, so, yeah, um, that's that's a really long answer no, no, no. to the question. No, but no, it's great. And I mean, you can kind of tell. to many professors, so you know that like once you start, once you mention the word research to us, like all bets are off on like how long we're going to keep talking. Oh, man, I love that. And it kind of highlights you know, when you say, oh, professors and research, because one of the things I like to focus on is how do people get to where they are? How do they know? How did they become this? And so oftentimes, especially with professors, do you think it's just it, or a lot of it is a personality trait? They, you may not know this was it, but the personality fits perfectly. Yeah, well, I, I think it's partly personality, but I also think that um, the professors from the United States are probably a little different from the professors in other countries in, 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 in the following sense. I mean, you know, the, you know, I think one, one of the, one of the greatest victories of the United States in some sense as a country, I think is it's a higher education system, just sort of the depth of, um, you know, the depth of quality that we have in the university system here and the model of employment, which is, you know, you come, you become a professor, you teach students, which is, of course, sort of like, you know, why many of us are here. But you also have a tremendous amount of time to think and do research and choose the topics that you want to sort of understand better and tell the world about. And, um, you know, I often assess a country's education, higher education system, not by the quality of its top university, because, you know, everybody is going to have their MIT and their Princeton. Um, or their NYU, but uh, the quality of like, you know, how good is the 100th ranked university, you know, and I, I think that's that's the front on which um, we've, we've got a system here that is just sort of far ahead of, you know, any other countries and attracts sort of people from around the world. And so the personalities of the professors that, you know, sort of are attracted to this tend to be, yes, people who love to teach, but also people who are sort of entrepreneurial thinkers in some sense, because they're attaching themselves to a system that gives them the freedom to think and explore and answer questions about the world in a way that's relatively unconstrained. Do you think at all about the, you know, there's there is some uh, critics of the higher education system in America you know, the, this idea of the costs, this idea that you can get a lot of the education elsewhere. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of thoughts behind it. Now, you teach at NYU, which there's really no there's no way around it. Obviously, you go to NYU, you're you're better set for a lot of reasons. One of the things, though, that I think people miss in that argument is this idea of research that if you if we don't have people who have time to think about these issues and delve deep in 
then we might end up with the scenario where, you know, we we give up the goods there um, for this idea that at least we don't have to have the formal university setting. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of us think about the future of higher education, um, or there's been a lot more thought about it in the last five years, I guess, than in, say, the first 10 years that I was at NYU. And, um, you know, I, I, I do agree that there are many things about um, the higher education options that people have today that are a little broken. Um, I think that we are in the process of fixing them. But, you know, from at least from the from the point of view of my students and, you know, maybe if you ask them, you'll get a different answer. But, um, you know, the, the way they tell it to me, um, they enjoy the fact that, you know, they can interact with the source of the thought that they are trying to understand. And so the fact that they have professors who do research and who aren't just, you know, um, giving them a textbook to read or like, you know, are not just the source of content on paper, but they're interacting with them. They're getting frameworks for thinking about how the world works with sort of the back and forth with them. I think that they see that as an important part of their educational process. Of course, the students at NYU also see New York as a big part of that. And I think that's one of the dimensions along which higher education is going to change in the next few years. Um, it's going to become much more experiential and sort of grounded in, you know, the place where you are. And so NYU students are going to be leveraging sort of New York a lot more than they are today in 10 years. Um, we'll be sending them to the companies. We'll be sort of making sure that we sort of integrate the geographic advantage that they have over here much more deeply into the educational system. So I think we'll 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 see sort of a bifurcation where um you know there'll be less of classroom, you know, sage on a stage sort of delivering content to students and much more of sort of two other polar extremes. One is where the students are deeply embedded in a context and actually experiencing what they learn. But we'll also have in parallel a lot of sort of additional digital content that the students are getting that'll substitute for what they're getting in the classroom. Um, but at least at the undergraduate level, eventually when you get down to it, I think a big part of our product is this sort of rite of passage experience that, you know, someone goes through when they go to college, you know, and that transition from being a non-adult to being an adult. Mm -hmm. And I think every culture through history has had some sort of rite of passage you know, anthropologists have sort of documented this 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 process by which you sort of go through this, you know, maybe you would go to the forest for a year and then come back a man or, you know, come back a grown up. Ours is going to college for four years. And it's hard for me to see that, you know, being replaced by a bunch of online content. And so I think that there'll be a lot more resilience than one expects. Um, but I do worry a little that... Um, you know, I've, I've seen the way that journalism has evolved over the last um, 20 years, and it's led to a whole bunch of really exciting new things that are um, in the same way that sort of digital innovations in higher education will. But I think also in the process, um, you know, um, it's challenged the business models of the large media companies in a way that has reduced the amount of investigative journalism. And to some extent, it's not clear 
you know, we may not even know what the impact of that is because we don't know what we don't know anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, when I start to see the business models of universities be threatened a little by, you know, um, digital changes, um, it, it sometimes makes me worry that we may end up in a place where the quality of education that we end up being able to deliver to students may go down. We may have to cut out some of the liberal arts stuff. And, you know, if you don't teach people in college how to think in the way that a good liberal arts education does, then, you know, when they graduate on the face of it, things may not seem different. They may be all tooled up with great skills and like data science and, you know, architecture and everything. But, you know, 20 years down the line, when they're sort of making decisions about the world, the way that they are thinking may not be as sophisticated as it would have been had they gotten the high-quality liberal arts education that a lot of our students get today. This week's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses. Like so many of you, our love of learning didn't stop when we finished school. That's why we're excited about the new The Great Courses Plus video learning service. You can learn about anything that interests you with unlimited access to thousands of The Great Courses lecture series on so many fascinating topics taught by the top professors. We really want you to try The Great Courses Plus, so they're giving our listeners a special chance to watch hundreds of their courses for free, including the course we just watched, The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries. Inexplicable Universe, presented by the well-respected astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, explores some of the universe's biggest mysteries in an engaging, fascinating manner. Listen up, some of that stuff is super complicated, but Neil deGrasse Tyson takes those topics and makes them so understandable. You can learn about black holes, quantum foam, string theory. I mean, these are things that sound impossible to learn, but he just makes it so, so easy to understand. With The Great Courses Plus, watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. All right, guys, check this out. We know you'll love The Great Courses Plus like we do. Sign up today, and as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. Don't forget to check out the course we watched, The Inexplicable Universe. So here's how you do it. To start your free trial today, sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smartpeople. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart people. And now back to the episode. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I think about is, cause I agree in specifically in terms of the transition from call it, you know, teenage years to young adulthood. I mean, if I, I think about where I was at 18 before going to college, I, wow. I mean, <laughs> it's just funny to think about. I was, I didn't know anything. I was just a little kid. You know, I wasn't even a kid. I was like a little kid. And it, it forces growth in a number of different ways, socially and mentally and all of that. I think a lot of the kind of issues or thought comes in on the costs to do that. People will say, do I, you know, now especially, am I going to pay 50, 70, 100,000 and sometimes more for, for my son or for them to take debt to learn how to transition into the real world? That seems I think that's where some of the pushback comes from. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's uh, my guess is that over time we'll move to a model where, um, you know, the cost may go down 
or the cost may remain the same, but the um, model of engagement may change in a way that you you don't spend as much time in college dedicated to doing nothing but learning. Like that four years may go, out, go down to two years or three years. But then it's the universities give the students a commitment that you can come back and learn anytime during your life. And so it's sort of like, you know, you're buying a subscription to lifelong education in addition to sort of having the concentrated piece. Hmm. That's interesting. And the online courses when you throw that in. Because, yeah. man, I, I went and looked at, and I, I'm a big fan of kind of online courses. And then I recently looked at, I don't know, I get these emails about a bunch of educational courses, but it was something out of, I want to say, Stanford and all that. And it was expensive. I mean, of course, it's not in, in terms of a Stanford education, it's not expensive. But considering it's a e-learning platform, which isn't always formally recognized, it was a lot of money. <laughs> I know. It's, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot that goes into, I guess, developing that content. There's also a lot that goes into, um, you know, part of the pricing has to do with brand, like, you know, the brand association and, um, you know, some some of that may get challenged over time as we come up with other ways of sort of screening and certifying students. You know, you may well find that, um, you know, you do a whole bunch of online courses and, um, you know, uh, there's there's a lot of data that's generated about like your capabilities and your intelligence and so on through the doing of those courses. And we may have, you know, machine learning systems that are able to sort of give a good assessment of like how successful you're going to be in a particular career that might start to sort of challenge the professor given or university given um, certifications or branding. But yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a time of, um, it's a time of significant change for higher education. And I'm an optimist on that front in that um, I feel that while you know, um, we we have to make sure that we don't compromise on the quality of education that the people who come to four-year colleges are getting. Um, in parallel, we're going to dramatically expand the opportunities for people who may not have been able to afford a college education. Mm. I think that's I, – I really like that way of putting it because, again, if you have the – the resources, and I guess then the argument becomes, well, fewer people are having the resources, but we're not here to, to get into that full economic argument or debate. But for those that do, you know, and, and I was lucky enough, look, I didn't go to an NYU. I went to an in-state school. I thought it was great. My, my parents paid for it. It wasn't, it wasn't as expensive as it is today, or many of them are. But, um, you know, I would never give that experience up. And But for those that can't, for some reason, the opportunity to essentially learn the same thing at a shoestring budget is there if you're willing to put in the time to find it. Yep. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, this 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 has a big impact, certainly on, you know, say people in the United States who either didn't go to college or can't afford to go to college. Um, but its global impact is going to be even more significant once you sort of move to countries where people simply don't have access to high quality education. Um, you know, education's a sort of a key investment for any economy. You expand the fraction of the population that has access to education. It, you know, there's, there's really no, there's no economic or social downside that, um, you know, accompanies it. It's, uh, 
So it's an exciting time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks for that discussion on education. Didn't see it going that way, but that's the beauty of this show. I wanted yeah. to you know, spend the rest of the time really digging into your expertise, your book, this idea of the sharing economy, obviously something that has impacted all of us in probably both good and bad ways. And, and I figured a great place to start would be, could you tell us about the transition? So where were we if we have fully transitioned out of something, essentially? So set the baseline for us. Where were we? Where are we? And how is it going to progress? Okay. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll, let's go back about, um, I don't know, 250 years. Um, and because uh, it's... Uh, it's really a process of coming full circle in certain ways. And so if, if you think about the um, 18th century economy in the United States, um, which is often the economy that you learn about when you do a college economics course, because um, that's when Adam Smith wrote his book and all of the economics that has come since then, you know, is often framed in that context of the entrepreneur who sells to the customer. You know, the one person shop, the producer who is producing and through the market selling to the consumer. And, you know, um, back in the late 1700s, that's what the economy looked like. You know, you had individuals who ran businesses who were selling to other individuals. And what happened over the 19th and 20th centuries was the emergence of uh, what we now call managerial capitalism where organizations of increasing complexity emerged and started to dominate the production of the goods and services that people use. And so the railroads came along, the transportation networks, um, you know, the industrial revolution before that, the steel mills. Um, and, you know, we sort of get to the late 20th century where a vast majority of the sort of the U.S. and Western Europe's economic activity is through large government entities or dominantly large sort of, you know, public corporations. Um, and that's the sort of, like, you know, in some sense, that's the starting point for this next wave of transition where you have a large company. Most people are employed full-time by a company. This company is providing a branded product or service. Like, they're, they've got hotel rooms, they're sort of, selling you groceries, they are, you know, a government infrastructure is providing you with transportation. So the transition that then began was a move in some ways back to the model of individuals providing to other individuals. And so we started with a market economy, we evolved into this organizational economy or managerial capitalism. And now we're in the process of sort of recovering some of that market-based activity, but it comes in a different way. So, you know, it's not as if someone hangs out a shingle and says, well, I will accommodate people if they're needed. And like, you know, I interact with that sort of one person business. That person now lists on Airbnb. And Airbnb in its own right is an organization that's providing some of the things that a traditional company would. It provides some branding, it provides some uniformity, it provides a reputation system where you can sort of get some quality assurance, it provides insurance and so on. But it stops short of being a hotel chain. It hasn't hired people to provide 
hotel service. It hasn't acquired a bunch of real estate and dedicated it to short-term accommodation. So Airbnb is an example of sort of a hybrid between the 20th century company and the 18th century market. And it's got a little bit of the characteristics of both. And that's the kind of setup that I refer to as crowd-based capitalism, because it's not, um, <clears throat> it's not the 18th century market. It's not the traditional 20th century organization. It's something new. It's something enabled by digital technology. It's something that is peer-to-peer. Um, it's something that's increasing the impact of the assets, the capital, the labor that we're providing. Some of that is coming from the crowd, which is where the crowd-based comes in. Um, it's certainly capitalism because people are paying for what they get. And so along the way, um, you know, I used Airbnb as an example because it's a familiar example. But, you know, I see a lot of industries making this transition away from large companies mediating sort of the organization of economic activity and towards the defining of this new model of organizing economic activity where these platforms that are hybrids between the firm and the market are connecting crowds of people to sort of consumers who want goods and services. And they're doing it in a way that is going to have a whole bunch, is going to lead to a whole bunch of profound changes for our society. Because um, it changes what it means to have a job. It changes how we think about, hey, how do we keep these services safe? Um, it changes um, the role of the individual from being a provider of labor to being a small business owner. Um, it changes our basis for trust. You know, we might have said, well, I'll stay at the Hilton or I'll stay at, you know, this branded hotel because I trust their brand. And now you're kind of trusting the Airbnb brand, but you also know that it isn't an Airbnb property. It's someone else on the other end, and you're not quite sure who this person is. So you've got to redefine what you trust and how you build that trust. Um, it's also making economic exchange more personal in some sense, in that it's not sort of a faceless hotel employee or, um, you know, you sort of pushing a grocery cart through the aisles of like, you know, sort of a fluorescent lit, um, like, you know, sort of isolated grocery chain. It's you meeting the farmer who sort of grew the prod produce that you're buying or you actually sort of staying in the place of someone who you meet and you sort of form some personal connection with. So, so that's really, I mean, the book is about, um, Here's the transition that's underway from 20th century managerial capitalism to 21st century crowd-based capitalism. Here's why it's happening, the digital drivers and sort of like, you know, what, what caused this change? And here are the implications. You know, here's how it's going to change the economy. Here's how it's going to change how we regulate stuff. Here's how it's going to change the um, way in which we build trust. Here's what it does to the future of work. And uh, here are the big policy challenges that we handle. And here's how it's going to make us a more connected society. This week's episode is brought to you by libertarianism.org. Between Facebook posts by the guy you knew in high school and chain emails forwarded by your aunt, it seems like political debate is just noise. Most of what's available isn't trustworthy or well-informed. So what do you do? You check out this awesome podcast called Free Thoughts. Free Thoughts is a podcast series hosted by Aaron Ross Powell and Trevor Burris. 
Free Thoughts invites various experts to provide compelling insights and insider viewpoints. Free Thoughts is always a real and an exciting conversation. Start listening to Free Thoughts today. It's available on iTunes and on libertarianism.org. And now back to the episode. Well, and you know, there's there's so many things that I want to get into here, but the one that just keeps ringing in my ear is this idea that, and, and I know in your book you talk, you don't necessarily say it's all going to be great and it's it's uh, you know the best thing that's ever happened to us. There are some, there's plenty of issues with it, but the one that strikes me is although we are seemingly, and by we, I don't even know who I mean, but although the sharing economy is seemingly giving more of a voice, uh, more opportunity more entrepreneurialism to you know to to everyone it's also growing the companies that bought that 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 built the technology to incredible heights while in my opinion and this is just an assumption leaving those that are actually on the the, the bottom level right that the people hosting on airbnb the uber drivers the etsy creators it's still pretty difficult to make a livable wage utilizing those technologies. Would you agree with that? Because that is totally an assumption. Well, um, <clears throat> you know, I think it depends on the platform that we're talking about. And um, I also sort of take into account the fact that we're at a very early stage in this transition. And so um, the division of wealth in some ways between the platform and the provider that we see today um, first of all, it varies a lot across platforms. Um, it's uh, I think an Etsy seller gets far more, um, a far larger fraction of the revenue that they generate than, say, an Uber driver does. Um, and so there's a range across platforms. And I think that that division will also change over time in a way that favors the providers or favors the entrepreneurs. So... Um, I agree with you that, um, you know, there's not uh, an extremely large number of people at this point who is who are sort of making a living full time through one of these platforms in a way that sort of makes them really happy. Of course, there are tons of Airbnb hosts who are sort of like, you know, paying the mortgages successfully on their homes because they can generate the revenue. Um, there are lots of people generating supplemental income on Uber and Lyft. There are you know, over a million people selling on Etsy and in some sense sort of fulfilling their dream of doing what they want rather than having to work a job that they don't like. So there are certainly sort of um, good examples now, but I agree with you that it hasn't yet reached the scale where, you know, someone graduating from NYU says, I'm going to be a sharing economy provider. They will say, I'm going to go work for, you know, a large company. And and the reason why I think this division will, you know, so in 10 years, we'll have an order of magnitude, more economic activity flowing through these platforms. And so at that point in time, it will, in fact, be the reality for someone who, say, graduates from business school, that they say, well, I'm probably not going to go work for this consulting firm. I'm going to plug into the platform that allows me to run my own consulting business. Or um, maybe I'm going to, while I'm in college, I'm not going to do these internships. Instead, I'm going to be a host on Airbnb, and that's how I'm going to supplement my income. But what also happens is that, um, you know, uh, something that's central to the success of any sharing economy platform is a branded sort of like, you know, is a strong brand. And the 
drivers of a strong brand in the long run aren't advertising or marketing or sort of a cool logo, but it's delivering a high quality, consistent, you know, service experience. Right, that's mm-hmm. how you build a brand in the long run. You sort of promise something and then you deliver it and you do it consistently. Um, where I'm getting to is that eventually that rests on the shoulders of the providers. You know, I'm not going to get a consistently high quality experience with Uber unless my Uber drivers are happy and are sort of happy about providing that. I'm not going to get a high quality consistent experience unless the Airbnb hosts are sort of like, you know, on board with doing that. On that note, sorry to cut you off, but how do you think that is going to evolve as more people join in? And here's what I mean by that. I've been using Uber since the very beginning. And I've noticed as they get bigger and bigger and become more popular, it's impossible for them to keep as as high of a standard for Uber driver, frankly. And I think that's a natural transition. How are we going to deal with that as we we're still in the early stages. Imagine when it gets, you know, exponentially larger, the Airbnbs of the world have to be concerned about all the people opening up their home or apartment and the safety issues or Uber drivers and, you know, how they how they deliver. Um, I mean, that's, that's a great observation, Chris. I think that um, part of what we're seeing now is, um, you know, the period of rapid growth and a lot of these platforms want to sort of make their presence as significant as possible rapidly and become the market leader. And so at that point of rapid growth, you often face challenges maintaining a consistent quality because you're adding new people at this sort of extremely rapid rate, both on the consumer side and on the provider side. But, um, you know, three years from now, Uber won't be growing as rapidly as it is today because it would have hit sort of that point where there are there are enough Uber drivers in Manhattan or there are enough Uber drivers in Los Angeles or there are enough Uber drivers in Chicago or in Shanghai. And at that point, um, the growth will slow, the growth of supply will slow and the consistency will start to increase. Um, what will also happen if we stick with Uber is that they'll face a number of new competitive threats, and we're already starting to see them. Um, there's a company called Juno, for example, that is set to launch anytime now where you know their whole value proposition to drivers is come and drive for us and we won't charge, we won't take more than a 10% commission, and over time we'll share about half of the company's equity with you. And so, you know, that's, you know, once once something like that enters the ecosystem um, and you realize that, um, you know, Uber's business is not like Facebook's business in that, um, you know, New York could sort of tip to a different um, to a different provider without affecting Los Angeles or London or Paris. And so sort of these these network effects are kind of local to a particular geography. So it's easier to contest an industry leader. And so when, when you see the prospect of that, you say, well, what do you think a platform is going to do? Well, they're going to sort of start to come up with ways of drawing the providers more close to them. They're going to start sharing a greater fraction of the wealth with them. I mean, yesterday um, or, um, you know, there's 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 been a recent announcement by Uber um, about like, you know, sponsoring a driver's union in New York. 
I've often contrasted what I call the platform culture of Airbnb and Uber, because you know, Airbnb seems to sort of have ingrained into its corporate personality the idea that their hosts are partners, are people who they value, who they sort of, you know, who they're building the company sort of on in some mm-hmm. sense. I mean, this this is this is sort of the foundation of the company as the host. And so, you know, the platforms that are successful in the future will have a more sophisticated platform culture, which is sort of like, you know, the employee culture of an organization. You know, organizations 100 years ago probably didn't treat their employees as well as organizations do today. There's a much more sophisticated sort of understanding of how an employee needs to sort of feel a sense of belonging to a company and so on. And so a lot of that kind of thinking will lead to the platform saying, well, we're going to share more of the wealth with the providers. We're going to sort of come up with career paths for the providers so that if they provide through our platform, they can fulfill their aspirations. And all of this will sort of come more readily once we settle down and once the platforms aren't competing so aggressively for market share, which is what's dominating this rapid growth phase. Sure. Now, that's a really great point. This week's episode is brought to you by the awesome folks over at Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It helps connect people with information they need to do their best work. We all struggle with productivity. We're constantly under pressure to accomplish more and to do it faster. There's no one definitive way to accomplish that, so we devise our own methods to make things work. Usually these things don't work though, so Igloo is here and can help you do things your way only better. Collaboration shouldn't be painful. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Chris and I used it for Smart People Podcast, and it's been a blessing. You can do blogs, calendars, file sharing. You can create a forum for your employees to use. You can have a social news feed, create wikis, you name it. Igloo can do it, and it will help you do your work better. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. That's igloosoftware.com slash smart people. And now back to the episode. I'm so glad. Thank you for going through that. Because even specifically, first of all, let me say that I find almost all of the kind of crowd-based platforms that I've used to be exponentially greater than the incumbent. So, I mean, Uber, for, for whatever things you might disagree with, has to be or is almost always better than taxi cabs. You know, yeah. I think about when I first graduated college, we would want to go to the bar. We'd have to get a cab. And I remember the difficulty, the time it took. Sometimes the cabs don't show up. When are they going to come? Are they going to go to the right address? Are you going to get somebody on the phone? It was astounding. It, it was just unbelievable how terrible it was. And Uber came and just revolutionized it for the better. That's how technology can make our lives easier. So I, I don't want to be too disparaging, but I do think, as you said, that's the beauty of tech of uh, of competition. That when you have these other these other companies coming in saying we're going to pay our drivers more, which I think is one of the big issues with Uber, then they're going to have to figure something out, and we find a, a great equilibrium. And so I'm just glad you went through that. That was kind of eye opening, but made a lot of sense. Okay, I'm glad. Um, there was one of the things you you discuss in your book called you know the gift and market, 
in transactions. And I thought that that's a, a unique way of looking at it. Could you explain the idea behind that for us? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I mean, through history, um, different cultures have had things that we label gift economies. And um, what distinguishes a gift economy from a market economy is that in a gift economy, the actual object that is being exchanged is largely inconsequential. And it's the act of giving or receiving and the connection that it builds that really matters. And so we've got a little bit of that every Christmas when we get gifts from our friends and our family and our loved ones. Um, we do care a bit about the gifts there, but you know, it's the act of giving or receiving a gift and the connection that that implies. I mean, that's really the point of gift giving rather than saying, I want to get stuff, right? So, you know, if you look through history, you find that different societies have had this sort of gift culture um, where things are passed on from person to person and the object didn't matter so much. It was the act of giving or receiving that built the connection and the connection mattered. Um, and then you contrast that with, say, going to the grocery store and buying food. You know, that's that's a market economy activity. You sort of go, you pay for what you got, and there's no, you're not really trying to connect with the person behind the counter. And so, you know, I think over the 19th and 20th century, as organizational cap capitalism sort of grew, as we sort of became an organizational economy, um, our exchange became very market-based, and this idea that part of the purpose of some exchange is to form a connection with someone else, um, that got excessively marginalized. And so what I see in the sharing economy is sort of an interesting meld in many ways between the ideas underlying a gift economy and the ideas underlying a market economy. And so going back to our familiar example of Airbnb, um, sure, it's a market economy activity. You find a place, there's a price, you pay for it. And, um, you know, it's a commercial transaction in that sense. But it's not quite as commercial as staying in a hotel. Because part of the motivation of a number of hosts is to meet interesting people and to have, you know, like, you know, we want our kids to sort of be exposed to people from around the world. Or, um, you know, I have spare space in my home. And, um, you know, it's nice to actually have someone stay there because then I can have a conversation with them when they wake up in the morning. Um, I see a lot of sort of non-commercial sort of connection forming between Airbnb guests and Airbnb hosts. And that makes me think of gift economy rather than market economy. You know, on, on one end of the spectrum, you know, there's an Airbnb-like service called Couchsurfing that... Um, you know, many people use, which is essentially um, you become a part of couch surfing and you offer up your couch to someone else um, in exchange for being able to tap into the network of couch surfers. And when you're traveling to a new city, you can sort of get to sleep on someone else's couch for free. That sounds that that just sounds gross to me. <laughs> to <be> honest, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it's been around for a lot longer than Airbnb and it's pretty popular. And, wow. you know. It's the, the, the interesting thing about it is that um, a lot of people who are couch surfers don't think of it as an accommodation platform. They think of it as a social network. You know, the typical couch surfers behavior when they get to a new city isn't um, where do I find a place to stay? It's sort of where's the party? How do I meet 
couch surfers. And, you know, the act of giving accommodation is really sort of an incidental exchange that builds the connection. And so that's that's sort of very gift economy. It's like a modern manifestation of an accommodation gift economy where the connection is really central. But you've also got the other end of the spectrum through a platform called One Fine Stay, which is based in London, where for a thousand pounds a night you can rent, you know, someone's sort of fancy Mayfair townhouse. There's 24-hour concierge service. There's a butler. There's, you know, so the host is providing the space and then they get out of the equation and then it sort of runs like a commercial hotel. Ah, that's very cool. And But that's very market economy. So you've got gift economy, which is couch surfing. You've got market economy, one fine scene. You've got Airbnb in between. And mm. what I believe is that, you know, as we transition towards crowd-based capitalism, we're going to pull back some of this gift economy the, the sense of a gift economy into our everyday economic interactions because um, people like the sense of connection they get when they transact. We are we're sort of at a point in like the evolution of society, especially in the US and Western Europe, where people have this need for more human connection. And it's, it's, it's almost a physiological need, like our brains are wired to need a certain level of connection with other people. And we feel this thing called social pain neurologically when we don't have it. And part of it has to do with the fact that we've moved to cities or like, you know, a lot of community structures that used to give community have broken down. You know, um, people aren't as connected to, say, the church or the Rotary Club or these like the village community like they were 50 or 100 or 200 years ago. And nothing has emerged to fill the gap. And so people crave this connection. And I think a lot of what people are seeing as attractive about the sharing economy, even though they can't put their finger on it, is, yeah, they come for the lower prices or the greater variety. But what keeps them coming back, whether it's, you know, staying in Airbnbs or driving in the front seat with your Lyft driver or getting your groceries through Farmigo or La Rouge Kiravi, which connects you with the farmer and the other shoppers, is that it's sort of filling this void, this need for connection with other people, but doing it in a way that integrates it into everyday economic activities. And so, and, and that's what I mean by sort of that gift economy aspect of commerce coming back into our everyday activities. Because at the end of the 20th century, we had just sort of swung too far along. The pendulum had swung too far towards the market economy, and it's starting to come back a little now. Well, that was what I found so fascinating about, you know, the first comment kind of you made when we started talking about this, which was where we were, you know, 250 years ago. And it was it was very gift economy based, I believe. Um, yeah. And then now where we are, essentially, or even where we were 10 years ago, probably at the height of it, maybe. And uh, it makes sense. It's the evolution of it. Right. Because I think we saw we have seen what these large monopolies uh, can become and how they can inhibit not just growth and innovation, but also just they get lazy, frankly. I mean, I again, I think about the cab company. It just drives me nuts. So I'm so glad for these these technologies out there that are kind of helping, uh, you know, change the way we live, change the way we interact and adding the entrepreneurial abilities to more people, which I am absolutely a fan of. I just, again, want to say, Arun, thank you so much for being on the show. The book is The Sharing Economy, The End of Employment and the Rise of Crowd-Based Capitalism. It's brand new. 
Is it even out as of today? Um, as of today, it's you can pre-order it through Amazon. Um, the official pub date is June 14th, but okay. I believe Amazon is shipping pre-orders starting Friday. Yeah, yeah that's what I, I think I saw on Amazon. So we'll probably go ahead and air this on uh, upcoming Tuesday. And so people will be able to get it right there on Amazon. Of course, we'll link to that at Smart People Podcast. Before we let you go, wanted to see if there was anywhere else. Obviously, we have the book that we're highlighting here, but anywhere else that you wanted to um, make our listeners aware of, places they can find you, things they can read from you, etc. Feel free to visit my website or follow me on Twitter. These are two great places to find out you know, what I'm thinking about and writing about but also um, links to other people's stuff that I found interesting that relates to the topic of the sharing economy, the future of work. Arun, thank you again so much for being on the show. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Chris. This was fun. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Arun Sundararajan. His book is phenomenal. Check it out. The Sharing Economy, The End of Employment, and the Rise of Crowd-Based Capitalism. You can find his book on Amazon, and if you decide to purchase it, please do not forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Remember, this comes at no cost to you and greatly helps out the show. All you do is go to the link, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon, and then you do your Amazon shopping as normal. We get a nice little kickback from Amazon at no cost to you. If you're looking to reach out to the show, please send us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Once again, thank you so, so much for taking time out of your week to listen to our podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating, review, comment, all of that great stuff over there. It only takes a minute or two but you have no idea the impact it has on the show. It really, really does help us out. So thank you in advance to those that do it. And if you haven't done it yet, take a break from whatever you're doing. Give us a quick review. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, well, that's it for me this week. Please stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast. Connect with us on Facebook. Message us on Twitter. It doesn't matter. Just start a conversation. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up. And we will see you all next week. Thank you again to our sponsor today, the Free Thoughts Podcast Series. Most political debates these days, especially during election season, just seem like noise. Most of what's available isn't trustworthy or well-informed. But that's not the case with Free Thoughts. Free Thoughts, hosted by Aaron Ross Powell and Trevor Burris, invites top experts to provide compelling insights and insider viewpoints. Free Thoughts is always an exciting conversation. Start listening to Free Thoughts today. It's available on iTunes and on libertarianism.org.